Hello and welcome to this podcast. This podcast is the first in a series of podcasts exploring liberalism, the aim of which is to help you revise for your A-level politics exam. In this first episode, I'm going to explore the core ideas and principles of liberalism, which on the specification uh, is page 16. So it might be a good idea as you're going through this podcast to uh, just have that page up uh, so you can see the bullet points that I'm talking about um, as we go through. I'm going to start by talking about the core ideas and principles of liberalism, starting with individualism. So liberals believe that the individual is of primary moral importance. They believe that the individual takes priority over the group. This is because liberals believe that individuals have rights. And the possession of these rights means that there are certain things that other individuals or groups of individuals or the state cannot do to us. In fact, one of our key thinkers, John Stuart Mill, says that the only justification that the state can have in interfering with our freedom, the only justification that the state can have to coerce us, is to prevent harm to others. That's called the harm principle. And John Stuart Mill outlines that idea in a book called On Liberty. The second key thinker that's relevant here is John Locke. John Locke argues that we have a set of rights which he calls natural rights says these rights are life, liberty, and property. It gives two justifications for these rights. The first justification is rather straightforward. They're God-given. The second justification is that they are the rights that we possess in the state of nature. The state of nature is a condition of perfect freedom. The authority of the state does not exist, and therefore... We're perfectly free to live our lives as we see fit. The problem is that in the state of nature, our lives are constantly under threat from others. And so whilst we possess these natural rights to life, liberty and property, Locke argues that those rights are going to be under threat and therefore we need a state as a necessary evil in order to protect those rights. So you can see that the focus here on individualism leads to a strong belief in Uh, natural rights, or what we now call human rights. And it's this belief in rights, that these rights are primary, that leads liberals to believe in the primacy of the individual of the group. Because there are certain things that we cannot do to the individual because they're in possession of these rights. The second thing to consider when we talk about individualism is that there are two slightly different accounts of individualism Um, Classical liberals believe in something called egoistical individualism. And this is the idea that we are rational, self-interested creatures. And as rational, self-interested creatures, we tend to make good choices about our own lives. And therefore the state should get out of our lives. The state should be small, should be a minimal night watchman state that leaves us alone to pursue our own lives in our own way. The second view of individualism is called developmental individualism. This is believed in by modern liberals, people like John Rawls. And this view of the individual is subtly different. It stresses much more our individuality, our capacity to develop as an individual in a multitude of different ways. What John Stuart Mill might have described as experiments in living. There's also a sense here amongst modern liberals, that 
rather than being these self-interested creatures, as classical liberals suggest we are, we do in fact have a capacity to care for other people. We do have a capacity for altruism, and therefore the modern liberal account of the individual is much more compassionate, it stresses much more our connection to other people than the classical liberal account. And that's going to be important because if we've got a developmental account of individualism, um, it's going to be much easier to justify um, a, a larger role for the state in the lives of individuals because the state is going to exist to help us to develop our unique capabilities uh, and that's going to be supported by um, an altruistic view of the individual. The second value we're going to discuss is freedom. And the first thing to say here is that liberals believe that we can only truly have freedom if our rights are being protected by the state. We have a kind of freedom in the state of nature, but as we've already discussed, in the state of nature, because the government doesn't exist, our rights are constantly under threat. And so John Locke talks about having um, freedom under the law. He says, where there is no law, there is no freedom. But liberals do not agree about precisely what they mean by the word freedom. There are two views of freedom that are going to be very important because they're going to lead to very different implications for the size and role of the state. The first view of freedom is put forward by classical liberals and it's called negative freedom. So negative freedom is the idea that we are free insofar as we're not constrained. This is sometimes described as freedom from. So on this account of freedom, I'm not free if I am handcuffed to a park bench. If I'm handcuffed to a park bench, I can't get up and move around. My freedom is severely limited by constraint. Now, if this is our account of freedom, it implies that we are made more free by removing constraints on the individual. And that's got quite a clear implication for the state. If our freedom is increased, the fewer constraints there are, the state should be small. And the state should be doing less, it should be interfering in fewer areas of our life. And so this means that actually the state's role for a classical liberal is going to be very limited. In fact, the state should only really be existing to protect our key rights, our life, our liberty and our property. Um, and it might also enforce contracts between individuals. But apart from that, it's going to be doing very little. It's going to be a minimal state, sometimes described as a night watchman state. And that's justified because of this account of freedom, that freedom is the absence of constraint, and that our freedom is increased the more constraints can be removed. Now, modern liberals have a different view. They believe in something called positive freedom. Positive freedom is um, the idea that we are free insofar as we have a capacity to develop as an individual. This is sometimes described as freedom too. Now, on this account, the role of the state is going to be very different because the state's going to have a role in trying to help us to maximize our freedom. And if our freedom is seen as um, the freedom to develop our individuality, then the implication there is that in order to realize our potential as an individual, we're going to need a lot more from the state. Um, in fact, it might be that this account of freedom justifies 
quite a large role for the state. Now the state on this account is seen as an enabling state. The state is going to provide things like healthcare and education. The state is going to be involved in far more areas of our life. And that's going to be justified on the basis of this idea that freedom is about development. Now in terms of key thinkers here, we're going to want to reference people like uh, John Rawls, but it might be worth bringing in some additional thinkers. So possibly the most relevant thinker here is William Beveridge, who wrote the Beveridge Report. Now in the Beveridge Report, Beveridge argues that the role of the state is to slay the five giants, which are want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. And the idea here is that if you can slay these five giants, then it's going to allow people to develop as individuals. He's writing this report during World War II, and I guess the idea that he has is that the soldiers returning from World War II will need to have a state that's going to be much more involved in their lives than previously was the case. So that justifies in the UK the establishment of the National Health Service, and the establishment of um, a generous welfare system, a cradle-to-grave welfare system. And so it seems to be the case that there's a large amount of disagreement about freedom between classical liberals who advocate a negative view of freedom, seeing freedom as the absence of constraint, and therefore argue for a small, um, a minimal night watchman state, and modern liberals who argue for a positive view of freedom, viewing freedom as the capacity to develop and therefore arguing for a, um, an enabling state, a large enabling state. And we could just stop there, and that would be the end of our analysis. But I think it's worth evaluating a little bit here, because actually there's a large amount of agreement about freedom. First of all, all liberals think that freedom is central to their uh, political ideology. The clue is in the title of the ideology. They are liberals. They believe in freedom. And so actually, um, this prioritization of freedom is, is, is really quite important and significant and should be emphasized. Um, because liberals are going to come down on the same side on a lot of issues that pertain to the freedom of the individual. Um, whether that is the right of women to vote or gay marriage or abortion or the balance between freedom and security, liberals are always going to be advocating for the freedom of the individual. They're always going to be suspicious of an overly paternalistic state. Um, they're always going to think that the interference of the state needs to be justified. Um, and they're always going to be sceptical of that interference um, because um, fundamentally, liberals believe that coercive interference by the state needs to be justified in order to override this presumption that they have in favour of the freedom of the individual. And so we can overstate this disagreement between classical and modern liberals. Um, and therefore, it's really important when you're writing an essay about this, that, that you emphasise this. So the next area that we need to look at is the state. And we've been talking about that a lot already. Um, so there is this fundamental disagreement between modern and classical liberals about the state. And I'm not going to go back over that. Um, there are lots of different reasons why that is the case. And so what we need to think about then is what liberals agree about in relation to the state. 
Um, and I think the fundamental thing to emphasise here is the idea that actually all liberals believe um, that the state should exist. They're not anarchists. They do believe in the existence of the state. And all liberals believe that the state's authority, the state's right to rule, is based upon the consent of the governed. And so all liberals reject um, the argument that authority comes from above. And initially that was down to liberals rejecting the idea of the divine right of kings, the idea that the authority of monarchs came directly from God. Um, of course, that's now an historic debate, but there are still debates about um, the authority of the state, and there are still authoritarian regimes. Uh, liberals are united in the idea that the only legitimate form of government is, is democratic, um, and so the only legitimate state is one that is based upon consent. They also think the state should be neutral. Uh, and now what I mean by this is that the state shouldn't attempt to promote any particular way of life. It should be neutral between, as John Rawls puts it, competing conceptions of the good. Now what this means, we're all going to have different ideas about how to live our lives. Um, I might be uh, a Catholic, uh, I might be Jewish, I might be an atheist, I might be a humanist, I might be a Kantian or a utilitarian. We're all going to have different ideas about how we live our lives. Now the point here is that the state should not attempt to promote any particular idea of what the good life is. The role of the state is to be neutral between different versions of the good life. Um, and so the role of the state is, is simply to provide um, equal rights to everybody so that we can all live our own life in our own way and the state should exist simply to um, resolve disputes between individuals in, an, in a neutral and impartial way. Now this leads to a belief in another important liberal value which isn't emphasised very much in the spec but which is quite important which is the value of toleration. And to tolerate something is to allow somebody to do or to say something with which we profoundly disagree. This comes up a lot in uh, debates about freedom of speech, for example. Um, so Voltaire is alleged to have said, I detest what you say, but I shall defend to the death your right to say it. Emphasising this liberal belief that, that in terms of our freedom of speech, we should be able to think and say um, whatever we like with very few limits. Uh, John Stuart Mill says that the only limit, in fact, on our freedom of speech should be if we are inciting violence directly. Uh, and so our freedom of speech should be pretty much unlimited. And so a liberal state should refrain from interfering in our freedom of speech. A liberal state exists to try and promote a society characterised by toleration, by tolerance of di different views within society and different lifestyles and ways of life. This goes back to John Locke. Uh, John Locke was writing in a very different context to today. Um, but the first argument for a tolerant society was really addressing, again, quite a historic debate between Catholics and Protestants who were at war with each other over religion. So you had Catholic monarchs who were persecuting Protestants and Protestant monarchs who were persecuting Catholics. And it was all really to try and convert them to the other religion. 
Now what Locke realised was that you can't coerce somebody into changing their religious view uh, and saw so his fundamental argument in uh, a letter concerning toleration is that you can't compel belief. You can only change somebody's view by arguing with them and debating with them. Um, if you try and force somebody to change their mind, they might well, you know, pretend to change their mind. They might, um, if you're, you know, burning them alive for being a Catholic, they might profess to have changed their mind as they're burning in order to uh, to satisfy you. They might not. Um, but you're not really going to change their mind. So, so Locke's, Locke's view really is, or his argument, is that uh, you can't compel someone to change their mind. And so the only way of doing it is to, is to debate. Um, and this belief in debate, um, this belief in the power of debate and discussion, um, is a really strong uh, idea in liberal thought. Uh, it's taken up by John Stuart Mill, for example, uh, in Chapter 2 of On Liberty, when he's arguing for freedom of thought and freedom of speech. Um, his fundamental claim there is, is that freedom of speech leads to human progress. It leads to the furtherance of our knowledge about the world, because it's only in situations where truth and error can collide that we can make moral, scientific and intellectual progress. And there's a real belief within liberalism um, in progress. And, and, and the idea is that, that you can only get progress if you can have um, freedom of, of, of debate and discussion. And that can only happen in a society characterised by toleration of competing viewpoints. Uh, because if you don't have that, if you have um, what came before liberal society, which is a sort of dogmatic belief in religion, then different viewpoints are going to be suppressed. Uh, they're going to be called uh, heretical, for example. And human, uh, human progress, according to liberals, is going to be stifled by that. So I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but my point there is that uh, a liberal state should exist in order to promote a tolerant society, a society where competing viewpoints and ways of life and lifestyles can thrive. Uh, so that's an important agreement about the role of the state. And maybe the final agreement about the state, uh, to take us back to what we were talking about earlier, is that the state exists to provide freedom under the law. Without the state, our rights are insecure, and therefore the state must exist to protect those basic rights of life, liberty and property. And liberals are going to disagree about uh, quite a lot of other things in relation to the state, what exactly the state should be doing, how large the state should, should be, how much the state should be doing in terms of providing education and healthcare and a welfare state. Um, but there are areas of agreement. So the state exists to protect our rights. The state uh, fundamentally is justified by the consent of the governed and the state ought to be promoting a tolerant society. So there is a sort of limited area of agreement about the state, but actually um, quite a lot of disagreement about precisely what the state should be doing. Okay. So moving on from the state, the next value that we need to look at is rationalism. So this is the belief that human beings are rational creatures, capable of reason and logic. Now the belief in rationalism emerges out of uh, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period of time where reason and scientific inquiry were replacing uh, religious explanations for um, the world around us. And as I've just said, in the tangent that I went off on earlier, 
central to this is the idea that freedom of speech um, is going to be um, a really important thing to make sure it exists within society because if we have the freedom to debate and discuss ideas, then we're going to be able to make moral, intellectual and scientific progress. And this idea in, um, in liberalism about progress is really central as well. Liberals believe that history is a march of progress driven by uh, rationality, driven by uh, individual inquiry, the application of reason, the scientific method. The second thing here is that as rational beings, we are capable of making autonomous decisions about our own lives. Um, now, what I mean by that is uh, we as reason-guided creatures will reflect about what it is that we want to do with our lives and we'll reach a judgment um, from the inside about what we want to do with our lives. And those judgments about what we want to do ought to be respected by other people. And therefore, um, there's a link within liberalism between our rationality and our freedom. Um, as rational creatures, we possess rights because uh, we make autonomous choices about what we want to do with our own lives and those autonomous choices ought to be respected by other individuals, by other groups of individuals, and by the state. And that is because I make better choices about my own life than you would were you to make those choices for me on my behalf. Even if you are a benevolent state, even if you, by interfering in my life, are trying to make my life go better, um, even if, you know, from your perspective, I'm making some horrible decisions about my own life, you should not interfere in my life. There's a very, very strong anti-paternalism within liberalism that says, I know my own good um, better than you do. And this is particularly strong in uh, someone like John Stuart Mill. So Mill says um, there are a, a class of actions which he calls self-regarding actions um, that really are not the business of other people. You can reason with people and try and persuade them to change their lives, to try and persuade them to uh, give up doing things that you think are damaging towards them. But what you can't do is interfere in their lives in a coercive way. What you can't do is use the power of the state to uh, interfere with people's lives to try and um, make their lives go better in some way. Uh, so an example of this would be uh, seatbelt laws. Um, so we have laws in the UK that say you must wear a seatbelt because wearing a seatbelt uh, will save your life if you crash your car. Um, now if you imagine that somebody is driving their car by themselves and they want to choose not to wear a seatbelt, a liberal, according to what I've described, would say that you should be free to not wear your seatbelt and that the state should not be interfering and in saying that we must wear a seatbelt in situations like that where it only um, affects us. So rationalism leads to a belief in anti-paternalism and leads to a belief that the autonomous individual has rights and therefore ought to be free. And this belief in rationalism is also important because there is a belief that through the application of our reason in discussion and debate, we will get moral, intellectual and scientific progress. Now, the next value to look at is equality. Uh, and you can divide this into several parts. So the first part um, is equality of rights, sometimes called 
um, formal equality or foundational equality. Um, this is the view that um, everybody should be treated equally in terms of their rights, um, that we shouldn't discriminate against other people on the basis of arbitrary characteristics like their race, their sexuality, their gender, um, that we should act in a difference blind way. So we shouldn't treat people differently on the basis of their differences. Everybody's the same. Everybody's entitled to equal rights. And all liberals can agree to that basic foundation um, about equality, that we're, we're all fundamentally equal in terms of our rights. It's also the case that all liberals believe in equality of opportunity. Um, so all liberals um, share a belief that we should have a meritocratic society. So that is a society where people can rise and fall in the social hierarchy according to the exercise of their talent and ability. So those that work hard and, and do well and those who have talent should rise to the top and those that don't should fall to the bottom. And for a classical liberal, what they have in mind is that they're going to have a free market economy, a, a sort of laissez-faire economy where the state is small, um, where you have private firms within a free market economy and individuals making uh, their own choices. And um, there's a sort of social Darwinism going on here where um, those that make poor choices will sink to the bottom of society and that is where they ought to be and those that make good choices will rise to the top. Um, whereas you have modern liberals and their view of equality of opportunity is rather different. So they would argue that uh, actually um, we, we start off in life with, with very unequal uh, life chances and so if you have this classical liberal view of equality of opportunity where you just, um, the state just retreats and you have a free market and people are just left to their own devices, that's not going to create genuine equality of opportunity because um, people didn't have a, an equal starting point. And so modern liberals would argue that if you really want to create equality of opportunity, you've got to... Um, You've got to create a, a level playing field at the outset um, so that you can have a truly meritocratic society. So again, that's going to involve a much bigger role for the state, according to modern liberals, because if you're going to have equality of opportunity and meritocracy, you have to try and create an equal starting point. Now, the philosopher most associated with this is John Rawls. Uh, and John Rawls is interested in um, us coming together to try and come up with a set of rules for our society. And he wants us to think about how we could come up with a set of rules to govern our society in a fair or impartial way. So he thinks if we tried to do this just as individuals in the world, the problem would be that we're all biased. Uh, we all come from different social positions. We, we, the colour of our skins are different. Some of us are straight, some of us are gay, some of us are men, some of us are going to be women. And actually, we're not going to be able to agree to a set of rules because we're all going to try and uh, put forward rules that benefit us in some way. And what we're certainly not going to be able to do is come up with an impartial set of rules to govern our society. So what he says is we should try and come up with a set of rules um, within what he calls the original position. Um, and the original position involves a device that he calls the veil of ignorance. Lots of... Um, 
confusing terminology here. Let's focus on the veil of ignorance. Um, so the veil of ignorance is um, a situation where when we put on this veil, it's almost like a blindfold, we suddenly do not know pertinent facts about ourselves. So we don't know the colour of our skin anymore. We don't know our religion. We don't know our social position. Uh, we don't know our sexuality or our gender. So essentially what it's doing to us is it's making it so that we do not know um, what position within society we're going to be born into. We could be born in a very privileged position um, or we could be born right at the bottom of society in a very desperately difficult position. So Rawls asks us to think about, well, okay, if we were really behind the veil of ignorance, if we really didn't know what position within society we'd be born into, what sort of rules would we agree to? And his answer is that we would agree to two principles of justice. So the first principle is that we would agree to what he calls the liberty principle. So we'd agree to something like um, the harm principle, essentially, that we would want everybody to have the maximum possible liberty that is compatible with everybody else having the same amount of liberty. Um, so that's his first principle, the liberty principle. The principle that people focus on the most here, though, is uh, the second principle, which is called the difference principle. And this says that we should only allow inequalities um, that benefit the least advantaged citizen. And this is justified by the veil of ignorance. It's justified by the situation that we find ourselves in when we put the veil of ignorance on. Because when we have the, the veil of ignorance on, we don't know what position within society we're going to be born. It forces us to worry about taking off that veil and realising actually that we're at the bottom of society. And so Rawls um, uses this argument to justify a society where, um, where the needs of the least advantaged citizen are prioritised. And that's going to justify a much larger role for the state, one would imagine, um, than, uh, that, than certainly than classical liberals are comfortable with. Um, but maybe even it, it takes us slightly beyond modern liberalism. Some people, have, some people have argued that it leads in the direction of socialism, in fact. Um, but there we go. So, so Rawls' argument about equality of opportunity and social justice um, going much beyond um, where most liberals are on this subject. So the final thing to discuss here is liberal democracy. Two elements to this. The liberal element refers to the fact that society is going to be characterised by equal rights, by toleration, by all of the things really that we've discussed so far. Um, that everybody's going to have the vote, there's going to be universal suffrage, you're going to have freedom to debate, freedom to protest, toleration, etc., uh, and obviously the democratic element, which is that authority within a liberal society is only justified by the consent of the governed. Now, liberals support liberal democracy for many of the reasons that we've already discussed. It is fundamentally for liberals a way of holding the government to account. And so if the government starts to, for example, if the government starts to transgress uh, on our liberties, if, this, if the government starts to violate our rights, for example if the government simply does things that we, we don't agree with, we can turf them out of office 
uh, at the next election. So, so that helps to, to hold the government to account. And, and for classical liberals, it also might be a way of limiting the power of the government through democracy. But liberals also worry about democracy. So the fundamental worry, really, I think, about democracy is this idea of the tyranny of the majority. This idea comes from a philosopher called de Tocqueville in a book called Democracy in America. Now, the worry here is that if you simply do whatever the majority wants to do at any given point, which is the ideal of democracy, ruled by the 51%, you might have situations where the majority decide to impose their will upon the minority, possibly leading to the violation of rights. So, for example, you might have a particularly religious uh, majority and they might try and impose their will, say, for example, by um, banning gay marriage or, or criminalising homosexuality, as used to be the case in the UK as recently as the 1960s. And so liberals have worried about this, this tendency, perhaps within democracy, for um, democratic majorities to undermine the rights of individuals. So that's their first worry. The second worry, um, and this again goes back to John Stuart Mill in a book called Re um, Considerations on Representative Government. The second worry is that um, when you enfranchise um, the working class, as was being discussed in Mill's day, that the working class might use the levers of democracy in their own class interests. We haven't really talked very much about the economy. That's going to come up in a future podcast. But liberals support the idea of capitalism and private property. Um, property, of course, is one of the key rights that John Locke believes that we have in the state of nature. The problem with enfranchising the working class, therefore, is that they are the most numerous class within society. And through democracy, they may well, they may well be likely to gain power and they may use that power in their own class interest potentially undermining um, property rights, for example. And the third related worry is that democracy is a system of government that gives um, power and control within society to those least fit to exercise it, the uneducated masses. So Mill in particular worries about this, and he's got a very odd way of dealing with it, so Mill was in favour of giving more votes to citizens who could prove they were more educated about politics and fewer votes to those, in fact, no votes to those who couldn't prove that they had a basic understanding of politics. And whilst this idea, Mill writes in his biography, found favour with nobody, um, it does sort of point to the worry that liberals have about democracy, that a democratic government is a government um, of those least fit to exercise power, the ignorant. So there's a bit of a division here as well. Um, lots of these worries um, are worries that classical liberals had about democracy that are no longer shared by modern liberals. Modern liberals are far more um, enthusiastic and optimistic about democracy, um, although some of those worries, I think, are starting to return with the rise of populism, for example. Um, but broadly speaking, Classical liberals uh, tend to be um, in favour of democracy, but somewhat sceptical about the potential uh, downsides of democracy, um, whereas modern liberals are much more optimistic about democracy and have fewer worries about democracy. So that's it for now. Um, hopefully in 
listening to the podcast, you've been able to get some notes about individualism, freedom, the state, rationalism, equality and liberal democracy. So these are regarded as the core ideas and principles of liberalism. Um, and some of the debates that we've touched upon as we've gone through this between modern and classical liberals are going to be really important when it comes to writing essays because what you're going to need to be able to do is um, evaluate the extent to which these core ideas and principles unite liberals because they do unite liberals uh, and the extent to which there are divisions actually about um, the meaning of some of these ideas like freedom or the application of some of these ideas. Uh, to society through the state. So in the next podcast, I'm going to explore the ideas of some of the key thinkers. Uh, so hopefully you will join me next time for that.